The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Okay, uh, Acts. We are starting a new study in the book of Acts. To find it in your Bibles, go where we were last week at the end of John, and then turn a page. That's Acts. Uh, Our New Testaments begin with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, Acts is placed in our Bibles after John's Gospel. Interesting uh, that that is, because in reality it's the second part of Luke's Gospel. It's the second book that Luke wrote. So, um, even so, I want to make a connection to last week, my ending point in John. Remember how John ends with a statement that likely meant, that's likely meant as hyperbole, where John concludes saying, now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the book's that would be written. And again, this is intentional exaggeration, but when we consider the deity of Christ and all that he has done, that all things were made through him, and when we also consider that he is risen, that he continues to work as our risen Lord in each believer throughout all of history, then John's statement is not really an exaggeration at all. And eternity will be filled with some amazing stories. I mean, think of it. You you will not be bored in heaven and on the new earth. Because there are going to be story after story after story of the work that Christ has done. Never bored. It's going to be amazing. So, at first glance, we might say that Acts, uh, it, that it's about the apostles, right? It's about the birth of the church and the expansion of the gospel and how amazing that is when you think of it. Just starting out with this little fearful bunch and, and here we are. I mean, a worldwide massive religion that Christianity is. Acts is history. Acts is ecclesiology, the study of the church. But if we look more carefully, we should also recognize that Acts is Christology. It's a study of Christ. It's Christ's church. And Christ may appear to be absent because of his ascension. This is how Acts begins with his ascension. But this would be a wrong view of his person and his work as a result. of. And we need to think about what the ascension really is. What it means for us. In reality, Acts is another book of what Jesus has done. Through his church, by the Holy Spirit... So to rightly see Jesus, we should ask, what happened when he ascended into heaven? Is he absent or present? Who is this king of glory? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Uh, Father, our great and glorious God, we gather this morning to worship you, to sing of your greatness. 
your mercy and love and faithfulness to us. Thank you for calling us to new life in Christ. For the certain hope that is ours because of what what he has done and what you have promised us and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to rightly see Jesus. Cause us to grow in our understanding and love for you. To grow in our witness as we share the greatest news of all concerning your son Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, Luke begins the book of Acts by mentioning his first book. The book we now, that we know to be the gospel of Luke. And how he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, there's more to the work of Jesus. Part one, the gospel of Luke, is what Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is that part two, the book of Acts, will continue to show the work of Jesus. Traditionally, the book of Acts is known as the Acts of the Apostles. And of course, it does describe the Acts of the Apostles, primarily following Peter and then Paul, giving us a history of what they did and preached. It tells the story of the birth of the church. About a third of it is preaching and teaching Um, It it describes the empowering of the Spirit 
as they were witnesses proclaiming the gospel in Jerusalem, expanding to Judea and Samaria, and then eventually to Rome, which we recognize as the center of the of Luke's world at that time. And this is a this is just a surface view of what happened. We need to have a right view of Jesus. Both of Luke's books are about the ministry of Jesus. Part one has to do with Christ's ministry on earth, personally and publicly exercised by Jesus. And part two is his ministry from heaven, which is exercised on earth through the Holy Spirit. As we go through the book of Acts, let's notice that Jesus, Jesus is the active agent. He is the inspiring influence in doing and teaching, in the doing and teaching of the apostles. Jesus is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who energizes the witnesses. He is the one who directs them in their mission. He is the one who provides power to perform miracles. So the title of this book should cause us to ask, whose acts? The acts of the apostles? The acts of the Holy Spirit? Or... This title, as John Stott suggests, the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his spirit through the apostles. It's a bit lengthy, uh, it's accurate, it's biblical, but we'll just stick with Acts. Um, what do we notice? What do we notice about this book? Again, it's apparently the second book of Luke. And in both books, he begins with a dedication to the same man, a man named Theophilus. Theophilus, um, clearly not a Jewish name. And so this speaks to the expansion of the gospel to a, a Gentile audience. In the gospel of Luke, he, he calls him most excellent Theophilus. And so we assume he's a man of high rank or privilege within Roman society. Luke, a doctor, a historian, a companion of Paul, begins part one or the gospel of Luke saying that this is an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so evidently Theophilus had some knowledge of Christianity. Evidently he, he was likely a believer, a convert. Luke writes to give him certainty to encourage, to strengthen his faith by telling the, the details of eyewitness accounts about what Jesus did and what he taught. And in Acts, Luke begins with another dedication to Theophilus, saying, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. He points out that the Gospel of Luke ends with Christ's ascension. That's the last part of Luke, describing the ascension. And now with Acts, there's an overlap. Luke begins Acts with the ascension of Christ as he's taken up to heaven. 
So the first book deals with what Jesus began to do and teach. And the second book continues the work of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. It's an amazing book. It'd be exciting to go through. It's full of action. It involves arrests and imprisonments and beatings and riots and narrow escapes, a shipwreck, trial scenes, rescues. We see the infancy of the church beginning fearfully in Jerusalem with 11 apostles, a few women, a few disciples. And then over this book's course of time, 30 years or so, there emerges a boldness, a transformation. As Paul, it ends with Paul under house arrest for two years, awaiting his case under the threat of execution. And yet, what do we see Paul doing? He's boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teachings of Jesus. And when we see the, the incredibly fast growth of the church and how, how it infiltrates and changes cultures, it's hard not to think of applications and conclude that the 21st century American church may be missing something. As Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, Christianity is not a teaching. It's a person. It is not merely an outlook that is to be applied in the realm of politics. You start with a historical person. The Lord Jesus Christ was the theme of the preaching of the early church. He is the theme of the Gospel of Luke. He is the theme of the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus. Our culture is quickly changing. And it may seem impossible to stop this runaway train of immorality and division and disregard of truth. But we have to ask, didn't the church spring from such an ungodly, pagan, sexually immoral culture? Is our time unique? No. The church began in worse situations. The church has existed throughout church history in worse situations than ours. Hasn't there been revivals throughout church history? Okay, we don't know the plan of God for our country and how long or or even if there will ever be revival. But if it ever occurs... It won't be because of some small nationalistic view that asks, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel or the United States? It won't be an emphasis on morality. It won't be a a seeker-sensitive church growth plan that makes unbelievers feel more comfortable and entertained while going to church. It won't be some woke social gospel. It won't be empty emotions. It won't be an emphasis on signs and wonders. No, it's only and always a matter of us knowing and loving and proclaiming the person of Jesus. It's his gospel. And if we have not encountered him, 
if we do not intimately know him to be alive and active in our lives and through his church, then there will be no transformation to our culture because there is no change going on in us. Jesus is not a philosophy. He is not a mindset. He is not a mere example or some strategy to health and wealth and getting our best life now. Somebody that we use to get what we want. He's not some spiritual life coach. He's not a dude we hang with. He he doesn't say, just come as you are, I'll accept you. He doesn't say, just clean yourself up before I can be with you. He says, come to me. Not even come to a right set of beliefs. He says, come to me. I'm a real person. And I'm the only way that you can find rest for your weary soul. It's it's only if you take my yoke upon you. That you confess your sins, that you repent of them, that you trust in my atoning death that's paid the price for the crimes that you've committed against God. I can reconcile you to him, he says. You can be forgiven. I'm not some dead guru for you to honor. I'm risen. I defeated death so that you might live in me. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus presented himself alive to them. And that he truly suffered. He, he proved himself to them. The reason Christianity spread and impacted the world is because of the person of Christ. When it says he suffered, that's important. It means that Jesus is truly a man. He wasn't some superman. He's not God who only appeared to be like a man. No, scripture emphasized his real suffering to tell us that Jesus truly did take on flesh. His humanity is real. He knows our weaknesses and temptations. He is our great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, yet without sin. And so our ascended Lord is now in a position so that we might have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace in the many times of help that we need. His suffering is important. And verse 3 says that in appearing to them he gave many proofs. Proofs of what? Okay, here are a few. In appearing alive to them, he proved victory over death, that his claim of divinity was true, that the gospel claims of forgiveness and acceptance with God are true, that all who are united to him have the hope of resurrection because he is the first fruits of a greater harvest. He proved all of this and more. Jesus showed that he was not a ghost. He was not some spirit. They touched him. They ate with him. After his resurrection from the dead, for 40 days, for 40 days, Jesus appeared to them. 
He talked with them. He taught them more about the kingdom of God. He told them to stay in Jerusalem. He told them to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Our faith is in a living person. Every other religion only follows teachings. Teachings of dead people. We... We don't go to shrines, we don't go to holy places to remember Jesus. We know Jesus. He's living with us by the Holy Spirit. He's alive. He's given us His Word. He's given us His church. We follow a living, ascended, all-powerful Lord. So of course the gates of hell will never prevail. Of course evil, arrogant governments and societies will never have the final victory. We know this. We serve the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Our hope, our confidence is in Him. Jesus gives commands. Do we obey Him? Jesus gives us the Spirit. Are we walking with Him? Jesus gave many proofs that he's alive. Do we know him? Do we commune with him? Are we growing in our relationship with him through his church? If we're to impact our world, Jesus is the only way. Yes, times can be discouraging. We don't know his hidden plans. We don't know if our country will turn or not. But the only way it can, for real, is when his church is a spirit-empowered witness to the person of Jesus. Be involved in the causes that God calls you to, but without Jesus, it ultimately doesn't matter. Our calling is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things are add-ons. They're good. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And apparently this time, and as the Spirit opened their eyes, they understood some of it. This kingdom is built on the foundation of his death and resurrection. The kingdom is established. His rule and reign, now and forever, is inaugurated launched, unveiled. It's funny, people will ask sometimes, are we living in the last days? And I'd like to say, yes, we have been since the first century. Jesus said so. (laughs) This kingdom is inaugurated. Before Jesus ascends, he's preparing his disciples, giving them proof, speaking about the kingdom of God and of their need for the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, he promises, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit in order to continue his ministry in his disciples to the ends of the earth. And by the Spirit, Jesus will be with them. Remember what Jesus said to Saul when he's persecuting the church? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Not why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting? Jesus is with his people. Jesus is with you. By the Spirit we commune with Christ. And the evidence is seen as those who were formerly selfish and full of pride, dull in their understanding, cowardly and fearful, now were apostles, sent ones, missionaries, representatives of Christ, witnesses to what they saw and heard, to what they believed to be true, even to the point of being willing to suffer and die as martyrs. The Christian church will will fail when it ignores the person of Jesus. His kingdom is established through his death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit empowering us as witnesses in this. Without this, we will likely be small-minded like the disciples who initially were asking, Lord, will you make Israel great again? And Jesus says, think bigger. (laughs) My kingdom is bigger than national Israel. The kingdom of God is not a, a small territory or one people group. All nations, all peoples will be a part of my global kingdom. It, it'll start in Jerusalem. It'll extend to Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. This is your mission. Don't lose sight of what's primary, to go and make disciples. And I love that Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Churches can get caught up into predicting what Jesus tells us not to predict. While what he clearly tells us to do is to go and make disciples. God is sovereign over the times and seasons. He reassures us that he is sovereign over Satan and persecution. And that Jesus will ultimately win the battle. And our hope is secure in him. That's the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. The study of end times, it's it's an important one, but not as so many people tend to view it, which tends to be, sadly, as an escape, as a, I can't wait to get out of here, as a matter of fear or a fascination that distracts us from an intimate relationship with Jesus who is with us now by the Holy Spirit, who tells us to share Him, to share His gospel to everyone because the entire world is His kingdom. He didn't come to rescue Israel to shouts of, Hosanna! He came to rescue mankind. So let Jesus be our focus. Not the newspapers, not current events, trying to figure out what is not for you to know. And I get it. It's pretty exciting to think about the second coming. And we should. To visibly see Jesus coming in the clouds. But keep in mind that Jesus is also with you right now. Don't be looking up into the sky or in a newspaper and miss out on an exciting relationship with him right now. 
through the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts shows us that Jesus, though ascended, is also present and active in his church. So let's think about the the ascension and what it means. Look at verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Pretty shocking, don't you think? Pretty awe-inspiring to have seen this. Remember, Jesus has a physical body. He's not some spirit floating around up in the sky. His resurrected body was touched. They ate and drank and talked with him. And as he's talking, he begins going up into a cloud. This is not symbolism. This is literal. He begins bodily going up into a cloud right before their eyes. Going up suggests what? Promotion. Exaltation. God the Father is bringing him up into his presence. Clouds are often throughout scripture symbols of God's presence. With Moses, the the cloud on Mount Sinai, what it, it represented God's holy presence. When God's presence descended on the tabernacle, it was it was in the form of a cloud. The same is true in the wilderness and in the days of Solomon. Uh, also, Jesus, when he was transfigured earlier, there was the same kind of cloud. And when it happens now, with the ascension, when it happens now, don't you think, okay, Peter, James, and John, they were at the transfiguration. When it happens now, don't you think they were, they were like thinking, hey, we've seen this before. <laughs> He's coming back. <laughs> he did last time. They probably kept staring up into the cloud because, yeah, last time he did come back. But then a couple of angels appear and basically say something like, okay, it's time to stop looking. (laughs) Uh, One day you'll see, one day you'll look and see him coming, but for now, there's a lost and dying world that needs to hear the good news of his kingdom. There's probably a lot that we can glean from the ascension. Um... A lot of church traditions have Ascension Sunday. I didn't grow up in that tradition. So I didn't have a big... Yeah, the Ascension gets, gets kind of gypped, don't you think? We, we speak of 
uh, Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection, those are primary. And then the ascension kind of gets lumped in with them in our creeds. But the ascension is a big deal. Um, Let me suggest three things that we can learn from our text here. First, it shows his final return to heaven. Obviously, if the disciples, think of it, if the disciples hadn't visibly seen Jesus go up into the presence of God, then they probably expect him to show up tomorrow. If the ascension was just some secret private event where Jesus just, without anybody knowing, went up into heaven in the presence of God, he had been with them for 40 days. He'd disappear, not be with them, and then he'd show up. So if they hadn't visibly seen this, they would have thought, where's Jesus? Why isn't he next week? So remember, Jesus had been with them. He appeared with them. So this left no doubt. They'd be, otherwise, they'd be waiting around for him to show up instead of realizing that, that he's exalted in glory. He's at the right hand of the Father. They needed to see this in order to realize the transition that had just occurred. What's about to happen and their roles in being a part of his work. Second, the ascension told us how he would return from heaven. It it tells us that this is his final return to heaven, but it also tells us how he will return from heaven. The ascension of Jesus, it was bodily, it was visible, it was the display of God's glory. So his second coming is going to be bodily and visible and a great display of God's glory. The angels say, this Jesus, this Jesus, will come in the same way. Not a different or transformed Jesus, not a spirit Jesus, but this Jesus... The Jesus who is flesh and blood in a physical resurrected body is coming again. And this suggests that he is now, he is now and forever human and truly God. Truly man and truly God. Forever with this human body, with wounds that display the glory of the cross. Jesus in heaven is the same. And I don't, I don't comprehend what this realm of heaven is, but apparently Jesus is there with a body because he's coming back with a body in the same way. It creates a lot of questions that we can't really know. Jesus has a body, and yet he is present with us. The Holy Spirit makes it possible. The Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to commune with Christ simultaneously. Without being put on hold. Without waiting in some line. And I imagine this is why Jesus says that his going is to our advantage. Thankfully, I don't need to comprehend this in order to see that it's true. Jesus has a heavenly ministry interceding for us as our great high priest, pleading for us on the basis of his finished work on the cross. 
So he is aware. He is involved. He is present with us. Third, it was a visible display of his promotion. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the promotion that Jesus anticipated and prayed for. A return to heavenly glory because Christ emptied himself. Christ took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, as a result of this... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's ascension was the beginning of his exaltation because he emptied himself because he willingly came to do the father's will because he accomplished our redemption vindicated by the father in raising him from the dead christ is exalted Christ goes up in a visible display, highly exalted, and given the name above all names. Now when we think of the ascension, we think of Jesus going, right? And we might imagine the disciples reacting as they did when Jesus was telling them he was going to go. They were sad. So we might wonder, as they watched Jesus going up into heaven, were they sad? Again, the emphasis in Acts is not the absence of Christ, but his presence in a different way. So the point of his ascension is not a goodbye as much as it is a greater scene of his glory. A scene that would turn the world upside down. Luke describes Christ's ascension in both of his books, here in Acts 1 and at the end of his gospel. After watching Jesus go up into heaven, here's how he describes their reaction in the gospel of Luke. It says, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Not sadness. They worshipped him. They were in awe of what they just saw and they returned with great joy and they were continually in the temple blessing God what does that say about the ascension and their view of it instead of being sad they were in awe and worshipped him and returned with joy great joy Jesus Jesus had always been divine, but now his human body occupied a new place of honor. It's a transition that Psalm 24 anticipated. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. This is the ascension. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Yes, we, we anticipate and long for Jesus to come again, but we need to be careful that we're not standing idly by looking into the sky when instead we should be in such awe that we can't help but be changed, worshiping Him, joyful in Him, strengthened and motivated to tell others, even if it means enduring hardship, and persecution. It seems this is the point of Acts and what Jesus wants for us, his church. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the king of glory. And we celebrate the honor, the exaltation of your entry into heaven. We praise you as our great high priest. We give thanks that you, that you understand, that you sympathize with our weaknesses. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who enables us to walk in your ways and commune with you and to obey, to obey you and to live for you. Lord, we pray for your church. We pray for the church in general, for BCC more specifically, that that we may be about your kingdom, what you have accomplished, and that you would make us bold in sharing the gospel, in making disciples. Lord, help us in our various callings. Help us not to lose sight of you. We pray for our country. We pray for revival. We pray that we would grow in our love for you. We gladly bow before you and pray in the name above all names.